Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Lots going on. The House uh, set to send impeachment articles to the Senate tomorrow, it looks like. That further delays USMCA. We'll be uh, keeping a close watch on that. Of course, tomorrow expected to be the day for the signing of the Phase 1 U.S.-China trade deal. So much going on. We'll talk about that as well as still look back at Friday's WASDE numbers with University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin, who will be joining us. Also today, we're going to talk with the chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association, Scott Richmond. There have been some claims made that the U.S. has now achieved energy independence, that we don't need foreign oil anymore. Well, if that's the case, why are we still buying foreign oil? Uh, we'll get into that whole energy independence uh, issue and the role that uh, ethanol plays in that. We have made great strides, that's for sure, in lessening our dependence on foreign energy sources, and ethanol and renewable fuels have played a big part in that. We'll be talking about that with Scott Richmond. And then Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers will join us to get the uh, latest ag equipment sales numbers. We check these each month, so we'll be looking at the December numbers, which will also give us a chance to look at the whole year of 2019, then look ahead a little bit here in 2020. All that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start things off with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, thanks for joining us. There are a few things to talk about today. Yeah, there's never a dull moment, is there, Mike? Plenty going on, that's for sure. You know, as we get ready for this China trade deal to be signed, there's been so much hope and optimism that this will open the door up to U.S. ethanol exports into China, but kind of damper on that uh, prospect is the announcement out of China. They're kind of backing away from their uh, E10 mandate that we thought was really going to uh, make them a big market for ethanol, and they hopefully still will be, but this kind of brings it into question a little bit, at least for how soon that might happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, uh, you know, going into this trade deal, um, I think ethanol was one of the one of the areas in ag where uh, we thought might benefit, you know, almost immediately because, you know, we talked about this mandate, uh, an E10 mandate that the Chinese government had in place that uh, was supposed to take effect uh, this month. Uh, apparently they've seen a real drop in their corn stocks, and so it's really uh, it's really gotten to a point where they had to basically call it off for the time being, and I think uh, it is, you know, it is rather disappointing. Uh, you know, before the whole Chinese uh, trade battle got started, we uh, we were seeing quite a lot of inroads uh, for U.S. ethanol into China, um, and so to have it, uh, you know, to have it at this moment uh, where we're coming up on a trade deal and and uh, and, and everything looking up, uh, to see the Chinese kind of uh, walk away from the E10 thing is, was really disappointing. But I do think that uh, you know it. China has a very large market, potential market for ethanol, and I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, as long as the trade situation can be worked out and, and stabilized, I, I do think that uh, we're going to see quite a bit of benefit uh, from the Chinese market eventually. You know, it looks like they're going to, in the announcement tomorrow, it's expected they're they're going to stick with that uh, four, at least $40 billion in ag purchases from the U.S. in this trade deal. And many have been trying to figure out how we're going to get there, and many thought, ethanol would be a way to uh, help us get to that number so we'll we'll wait and see if that takes place or not meanwhile uh on these small refinery exemptions that we talk so much about uh, to the rfs keeps that are that keep getting granted by epa the gao is now investigating those Uh, what can you tell us about that well yeah uh, mike you know back uh, a month or two ago uh, a number of members of the house of representatives led by colin peterson of minnesota uh, had asked the GAO to look into these small refinery exemptions and, and how EPA was was doing these. And one of the things that uh, they asked of the EPA, or I'm sorry, of the GAO, was to uh, explore what the Department of Energy had said about um, some particular waivers. I believe it was in uh, 2018 waivers. Uh, there were a number of those where applications that came in 
according to DOE, really had uh, they really had no concern about the via, you know the financial viability of, of many of the refiners uh, who had made requests. Um, and so, one of the things that the GAO has been asked to look at is uh, whether somewhere along the way that the methodology used by EPA and the Department of Energy had changed. Uh, to where we were seeing all these waiver uh, requests being approved suddenly. You know, it started in 2016 and uh, it's kind of continued on from there. And so, uh, you know, just to see the GAO looking at this, I think, is a very positive step. I mean, I mean it's kind of gotten to a point where uh, you've really been asked just to trust the EPA on, on what they're doing. And I would say that most people in the biofuels industry and in agriculture don't trust the EPA on this front. And so, uh, to get the GAO involved in this, I think, is a probably pretty good step. Yeah, there were claims that EPA was working with and following DOE uh, suggestions, and then it looks like they weren't. I mean, there have been all kinds of misleading statements on this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, when you look at look at the law involved, uh, it, it seems that the EPA has had plenty of wiggle room in, in, in terms of, you know, how it decides uh, you know who to grant waivers to, and I think uh, just having uh, just having the GAO involved at this point, at least having somebody that comes in in an official capacity and uh, hopefully gets a lot of the questions answered that a lot of people have been asking for the past several years. Uh, you know, it depends on how long this is going to take, but uh, I would suspect that this GAO investigation will probably get completed. You know, by the time the end of the year rolls around, uh, and so maybe we'll know a lot more by then. You know, as we prepare for another presidential election, I think back to the last one, one of the things that Donald Trump ran on was lessening the regulatory burden uh, on industries in the United States, uh, including agriculture. And we may be about to get a new uh, Waters of the U.S. rule. And they've also uh, said they're going to have a new, they're proposing new reforms to the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA, we talked with NCBA about this recently. They're very happy about this, uh, about these proposed changes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and Mike, I think uh, I think one of the things that when this announcement was made last week, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, infrastructure and how this was going to free up, uh, you know, highway projects and all these things that are held up by environmental situations. Uh, but one of the things that's in this rule that I, that I thought was rather interesting is the fact that uh, you know, farmers and ranchers often have to seek renewal of, uh, of their term grazing permits, uh, and that can take a long time when you're trying to get an environmental review done and, and all those things. And so this is supposed to streamline that entire process. I mean, we've had projects that have been ongoing for review for like eight years, and so uh, according to this new proposal, uh, you know, that's going to streamline it down, and, and hopefully a lot, of these, a lot of these things will be decided, you know, within a year or two. Um, and I, I think that's really good news. A lot going on for sure. And Todd, uh, we'll watch your reporting on the, on these topics as well and uh, many others that are going on. The more that we can <laughs> talk about all right now, we'll stay in touch. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin will look back at Friday's WASD numbers and look ahead to what a U.S.-China trade deal could mean for agriculture. We'll talk about that next on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, joining us now is Jonathan Kappas, Assistant Professor of Agricultural and Consumer Economics, University of Illinois. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. I've noticed more and more these payments are starting to 
to get some scrutiny and in some cases criticism uh, from various uh, uh, areas as the people look more closely at them, who's getting them, the amount of them, things like that. So this is going to be a story we'll be talking about for a while. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt you put that kind of uh, that kind of cash infusion into the countryside. There's there's no doubt it's going to help, and and it certainly is going to help at a time that you know farmers have been struggling for multiple years. But really, the the trade and tariff uh, moves by this administration has made it you know that much more difficult. And so you know, there, there, nobody discounts the fact that these will help, and these are helping at a time of, uh, of of some real challenges financially and economically. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Hey, it's me, your cell phone. We need to talk about something, something serious. I know you love me. I know you like using me wherever you are, but I feel like this isn't working out when you're driving. I know you may think that it's possible to focus both on me and the road, but I just don't feel the same way. I think we should spend time away from each other when you're driving. It's for the best. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, already kind of lost in the uh, shuffle of the news was last week's uh, WASDE report that you know, some kind of thought might have fireworks and it kind of fizzled a little bit, kind of turned out to be a neutral report in the eyes of many. Let's talk about it with Scott Irwin, University of Illinois Ag Economist. Scott, thanks for joining us. We had all kinds of questions going into that report. How many answers did we really get? Well, I think that um, there was, in fact, some fireworks in the report that have been kind of, uh, you know, shoved back in the desk drawer. Uh, by the market, but are really interesting. Uh, part of why it's, I think everybody's kind of still trying to assess is because the USDA made some very unusual changes to the um, previous 1819 corn balance sheet as well as for the current 1920. And so people have just got to look at each other going, what the heck? I'm not exactly sure how to interpret all this. Yeah. Some more of that creative accounting that USDA does that leaves so many people frustrated. Well, in particular, it's a, it's a seemingly small change, and in fact, it isn't a big one. What they did with the eighteen nineteen corn balance sheet, but it's the way that they did it that is really very surprising to longtime uh, corn analysts, because basically, what they did is for the 1819 balance sheet they started with what they thought was a reasonable uh, feed and residual for 2018-19 um, and so they dropped it 186 million bushels 
and then adjusted production and stocks, uh, production down and stocks ended up on net up. And then so we got greater supply coming into the current 1920. You know, that seems, you know, on paper, that accounting doesn't seem all that um, surprising. But it's the first time that I can remember in my professional career where the USDA took an implied category, which is the feed and residual, and changed survey categories, ex post production and stocks, uh, without having any new data on production or stocks to justify the change. So that's, that's a real eyebrow raiser to me in terms of creating accounting, creative accounting. Yeah, all these questions about the 2019 production can't get final answers till 2019 harvest is done, which obviously is now into 2020. You know that's right, and there's just nothing the USDA can do about that. Um, it is, I think, worth mentioning that that has actually happened before um, for the 2009 crop that was also harvested extremely late. The USDA did a resurvey and then had to end up changing their production and stocks estimates when they had uh, final harvesting completed in the spring. Uh, and they did that in the May 2010 WASDE report. Uh, so, you know, I think something like that is probably likely to happen again. We're talking with University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. So, normally that's. Uh what the focus would be on right now, a major report like that. But obviously, uh, China is the big news. I I talked about this yesterday. China is the driving uh, news story, it seems like, for always. I mean, because everything is kind of plays off of China. I said yesterday that, you know, China, we talk about ag safety nets when we write farm bills and we talk crop insurance. Really, the ag safety net for a number of years has been China, what China does. <laughs> and we've seen that play out this year. We had a huge uh, Mother Nature gave us a set-aside program last year, and we still didn't see the jump in prices many would have thought because of the uncertainty of trade with China. And the uncertainty with trade with China led to MFP payments, which uh, made a huge difference uh, last year. And so everything seems to revolve around China. So we wait now for this uh, announcement tomorrow of the signing of the uh, Phase 1 trade deal. Is there, um, do you have a concern that we'll fall back into the trap that China fixes all of our problems? Uh, not really. Um, I think, that, you know, the real, the big question is now we're going to get a signing of an agreement. But the, the, to me, the what we have, what we will learn tomorrow, which is is what is on paper. How closely does the language lock China into buying forty to fifty billion dollars worth of U.S. agriculture goods each of the next two twenty twenty and twenty twenty one? You know, everybody in the market is anxiously awaiting seeing those terms, and then we'll have to wait to see. Um, what kind of language that uh, the official Chinese reactions um, in follow-up days are to the language in the text. Um, Because I'd say that there's a a developing consensus in the marketplace of that there might be some disappointment with the vagueness of the uh, language in the agreement, um, and so we're actually setting ourselves up for the possibility of a, a bullish surprise if, in fact, the language and the reactions from the official Chinese sources say, no, 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 we're going to really ramp this up real rapidly. So, you know, could be really interesting one way or the other tomorrow. Well, enforcement will be a key, especially with the history with China on on these trade agreements. Uh, White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro saying the U.S. has the ability to swiftly reimpose tariffs on Chinese goods if it is determined that Beijing has broken any of its commitments under the uh, trade deal. Navarro also said the administration will have unilateral authority to make such a determination within 90 days of receiving a complaint. He said that's a very, very strong enforcement mechanism so you know that will be watched closely uh you know going leading up to this we've heard uh, 
big talk of big purchases on the U.S. side, and we kind of heard that downplayed on the Chinese side, and they've talked more about what they won't do. And I guess both sides want to put the spin on it to make it look the best in their particular countries. Absolutely. Uh, You know, the bottom line, the way I've tried to sort this out, I still have a hard time believing in uh, a 40 or $50 billion uh, target. I mean, that would just be... uh, the Chinese going on an incredible buying spree for everything. Uh, but if we can actually have in the next two years uh, Chinese buying from the U.S. of uh, ag products in the 25 to $30 billion range, um, that's going to cause a nice mini boom in our uh, grain and livestock markets all by itself. You know, we're at a baseline of someplace around 15 or $16 billion for 2019. So, you know, a doubling of that or something in that territory, uh, I think, would be a great outcome. And that's really what I'm hopeful, hoping for personally, Mike. I think that I think that's a great point. Uh, realistic expectations. Uh, if we get like twenty five, thirty billion, I mean that's that would be great. But I wonder now because forty and fifty billion have been floated out there that you know that becomes the bar of expectation. Anything under that would it seem uh, disappointing or you know uh, uh, a failure? Uh, instead of looking at it realistically and saying, hey, if we're at twenty five or thirty, that is really good. Well, in fact, we. You know, there are probably clever ways to stretch the terms out by forward sales, maybe for over three or even four calendar years. But if we're going to get actual, real dollar purchases within calendar year 2020 in that 25 to 30 billion, I, I would count that as a big win compared to where we've been. Yeah, we'll watch for the details, and I, I kind of wonder how many details we'll get tomorrow, but. W- when it's actually ships being loaded here and unloaded there, that that's when uh, we start really counting it as a real deal, right? Exactly. And so that's just what we'll have to monitor. And we have, you know, very good, um, really pretty good data that will be coming, able to monitor as we go forward to uh, assess how closely we're coming to those, those targets. So um, that's, that would be a good outcome. Well, all eyes will be on that uh, that announcement tomorrow and the and the ceremony, and we'll hopefully get some more information and a few more details at that time. But uh, we'll be talking about it for some time to come. Scott, thanks a lot. Always good to talk with you. Appreciate it. Uh, always enjoyed. Thank you. Take care. University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin. Well, up next, has the United States reached energy independence? Do we need foreign oil any longer? If we don't, why are we still purchasing it? What role does ethanol play in reaching energy independence? We're going to talk about all that with Scott Richmond. He's the chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Interesting uh, situation. One thing we know, our uh, dependence on foreign oil has greatly lessened over the last few years, in large part due to renewable fuels. We'll talk about that next on AOA. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. With the start of every new year, you always have new possibilities. The new year is upon us, and Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network, has plenty of news to be excited about. Your host, Mike Adams of Adams on Agriculture, has expanded the daily conversation into new geographies around the country. Mike has new online content, too. Navigate on your computer, smartphone, or tablet to AmericanAgNetwork.com. 
Under the Adams on Agriculture tab, you can listen to Mike's latest shows and also catch up on Mike's new weekly commentary. Adams on Agriculture is also available as an Alexa skill on your Amazon device. Adams on Agriculture with Mike Adams, presented by the American Ag Network. We're looking forward to new conversations with you throughout the year with information farmers and ranchers need to know. Check it out. Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. An hour into the trading day on a Tuesday, soybeans trending higher. The U.S.-China Phase 1 trade deal scheduled to be signed on Wednesday, but signs of larger purchases by China have yet to materialize. However, some 120,000 metric tons of U.S. soybeans were sold for delivery to unknown destinations in the 2020-2021 marketing year, according to USDA on Tuesday. That news comes as China appears to be re-entering the soybean market, importing a shade over 9.5 million tons of soybeans in December, a 19-month high. An hour into the day, March soybeans four and a quarter higher at 9.46 and a half. March corn down a half cent at 3.89. Wheat futures recovering from Monday losses with Chicago wheat March up eight and three quarters at 5.71. Kansas City March at 4.97 and three quarters up a nickel. We touched a high just over five bucks a bushel in early activity today. Minneapolis spring wheat March up two and a half at 5.57 and three quarters. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures, we are firm after Monday's losses. February live cattle up 27 at 126.82. Feeder cattle, March contract down 15 at 145.70. April down 12 at 148.67. Interest in the cash cattle market may have to wait until midweek or later, according to the wire talk. Lean hog futures, February $1.82 higher on a turnaround Tuesday at 67.70. Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow up 13, NASDAQ down 20, S&P down 5, February crude oil in New York up 12 at 58.20. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, Manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to invent help. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. It wasn't all that long ago that we talked a lot about how vulnerable the United States was by being dependent on foreign countries for so much of our energy, primarily foreign oil. And we talked a lot uh, about how biofuels like ethanol could reduce that dependence on foreign oil, and it certainly has done that. We don't talk nearly as much about uh, our dependence on other countries for energy as we used to. Some have made claims that we are now totally energy independent. We don't even need foreign oil. Is that the case? Let's talk about it with Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Scott, thanks for joining us. Have we reached energy independence yet? Well, thanks, thanks for having me this morning, Mike. Uh, unfortunately, we've not reached energy independence yet. Uh, we, have, we are less dependent uh, than we were 15 years ago on foreign sources of energy, but we are not yet independent. Uh, and after the recent uh, hostilities kind of uh, eased off with, with Iran, 
you saw a number of people, market commentators, uh, politicians, uh, saying not only that we were energy independent, but that we no longer imported oil uh, from the Middle East. And uh, that's not quite the case. Uh, you know, so it's important to keep in mind what the actual uh, numbers are, what the actual flows are. And it's great that over the last 15 years, as a result of uh, both shale oil production uh, and a tremendous increase in biofuels production, ethanol is now 10%. Uh, of the gasoline blend, we are a lot less dependent than we were. Uh, but again, we're not we're not independent. We're not an island under unto ourselves, and especially in petroleum, we're linked to international markets still. Even if we achieve energy independence, where we didn't need foreign sources of oil, wouldn't there still be some buying and selling of that oil anyway? Yeah, it, it always makes uh, makes sense. You're going to use what uh, you know. Individual refineries are going to use uh, the crude slate that fits best with their uh, with their configurations. There are going to be parts of the country where uh, shale oil is very cheap. There are going to be other parts where uh, where distribution of that shale oil uh, is not quite uh, as developed, uh, and uh, in, imports still happen. And uh, so we are, uh, we are seeing that. We actually uh, still uh, last year imported about uh, 2.5 billion barrels uh, of foreign oil, uh, about 550 million barrels of that uh, comes, from, uh, comes from OPEC countries. And so if you look at that 2.5 billion barrels of crude oil, that's still 41% of what our refineries use. So that's one thing that, you know, we're, we're just structured to use some of that imported oil. Uh, the second thing is that, you know, fortunately we are, uh, we are now exporting as well as importing. But, again, both of those things tie us to the world markets. And if you look at uh, our crude oil benchmarks, uh, West Texas Intermediate uh, versus international, international benchmarks like Brent crude, uh, they correlate together. The prices move together uh, very strongly. So in that sense, we are not immune from what happens in global markets either. We're talking with Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. Scott, uh, we both mentioned this earlier about how much we have lessened our dependence on foreign oil. A lot of that has to do with domestic production, shale, as you pointed out. But also, uh, and I don't think the... Uh, biofuels industry ever gets enough credit for this but the increase in our biofuels production has certainly made a big contribution towards lessening that dependence absolutely it's it's a a million barrels a day of uh, of of ethanol alone Uh, and uh, we now as i mentioned uh, ethanol uh, comprises more than 10 percent of uh, of the gasoline pool hopefully with the rulemaking that came out last summer allowing year-round E15, uh, we'll go even, even further past uh, 10%, uh, being 10% of the gasoline pool. And ethanol is made at 200 facilities that are located uh, in the Midwest uh, and somewhat beyond. It's typically priced about 30, 30 cents per gallon less than gasoline, and it's not highly correlated uh, to gasoline prices. Uh, there was actually a study done by a well-known energy economist uh, a few months back, uh, Dr. Phil Verlegger, and we've got that on the RFA's website. And he looked at the role of the RFS in particular uh, in, lessening, uh, in lessening fuel prices. And what he determined was that because of the RFS during the 2015 through 2018 period, uh, it saved consumers on average about 22 cents per gallon of motor gasoline that they produced. Interestingly, uh, and kind of uh, wound up having a little bit of foresight, he did a review of all the international oil market disruptions that have happened over the, over the last 50 years and pointed out how um, uh, in, in recent years, because of the amount of ethanol and biofuels that are, that are out there, that uh, biofuels are providing a, a substantial measure of protection uh, against those swings that happen when uh, geopolitical events happen.
It's a great story and one that does not get nearly enough attention. All right, let's uh, look at China because we talk so much about China. Um, They've recently announced they're backing away from their E10 mandate, which has uh, raised concerns. They may not buy as much ethanol from us uh, once we get into a a trade deal with them again. Um, What's going on there, and what do you see as still the potential of that market for U.S. ethanol? Yeah, so we don't know fully, and we are cautiously optimistic. Uh, hopefully, there will be some uh, some additional details tomorrow, or that will uh, will be coming out shortly after uh, tomorrow. But um, you know, China is uh, kind of in fits and starts moving toward E10. Uh, I've been looking at that market long enough to remember that uh, in the early to mid 2000s, they were uh, introducing pilot programs uh, in a number of uh, provinces and cities. Uh, and they've at times put that uh, on hold a little bit, but they have advanced that um, over the years and, and are pretty substantial users uh, of ethanol. Their domestic industry can't quite uh, make enough ethanol for what they want to use, and so uh, the U.S. industry is uh, uh, has the capacity uh, to help out and to help their air quality uh, in the cities over there, and so we are waiting to see exactly what the terms uh, of the deal will be. But even if it's not national uh, E10, even if it's uh, just further moves uh, in that uh, in that process toward uh, E10, it could be good for our producers. And China, just one of several countries looking to increase their use of ethanol. Yes, they are. We've uh, we've been working with our industry industry partners, especially the U.S. Grains Council, uh, and they've been looking to uh, open up uh, markets in a number of uh, priority countries. China's one. Uh, India is also a potential. Uh, it's a large market now, but it's a potential very large market, uh, and even closer to home. Uh, trying to uh, trying to work with uh, authorities and uh, industry participants. Uh, in Mexico to further open that market. There's uh, there's definitely uh, uh, potential on the international front. Certainly makes sense with the air quality concerns that many of those countries have. Meanwhile, we need a boost. We need a real shot in the arm for the ethanol industry uh, after some real down uh, years now. Hopefully this is a year to kind of turn things back around. Yeah, so last year was uh, <laughs> last year wasn't uh, wasn't a banner year for the industry, but I think that if if we get if we get China, if we get some of these other international markets uh, back in the fold and, and growing again, and, and if we get some some measure of control uh, as has been promised on small refinery exemptions, we could have a, a, a nice turnaround this year. As you look at the ethanol economy. Some have said, well, it's never going to be the driver, the market driver that it has been in the past. What, what do you see as uh, the, moving forward, your outlook for the ethanol industry? Well, I, I, like we were just talking about, I think that uh, you can get both uh, international growth. And uh, I, I would think that getting a deal with China might be the most immediate shot in the arm that the industry could receive. But... Uh, Again, uh, we were just talking a few minutes ago about uh, E15, and if you can uh, enforce the renewable fuel standard uh, and if the EPA ensures that those volumes are met as they are required to do by law, uh, we know that there are retailers interested in, uh, in adding uh, E15, and you might be able to get uh, as a result of the deal that was done uh, with the White House last fall, you might be able to get uh, some additional uh, infrastructure funding. If you put all those things together, uh, international market growth, um, slowly building that market toward uh, E15 uh, in the United States, um, I think that we can uh, that we can start uh, having uh, more of a recovery for uh, for the ethanol industry uh, after last year and start moving back into growth mode, really. Yep. Well, we'll gather for the National Ethanol Conference next month in Houston. Uh, We'll see what the mood of the industry is at that time, but hopefully we'll have some positive things to talk about. Scott, good to talk with you. Thanks for being with us. I will see you there. Thank you. Take care. Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. By the way, speaking of uh, being on the road and talking about biofuels, next week, 
Next Tuesday and Wednesday, I will be in Tampa, Florida at the National Biodiesel Conference, and we'll talk a lot about the biodiesel industry. Up next, though, we're going to look at the uh, latest numbers, the December numbers for ag equipment sales, and we'll be able to review the entire year of 2019 and look ahead to this new year of 2020. Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers joins us next on AOA. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, 800-745-3327, 800-745-3327. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110 and I had a stroke and I'm 33 so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it or talk with your doctor to create an exercise diet and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell Brought to you by the American Heart Association American Medical Association and the Ad Council Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Borden Dairy Company is the second major milk producer to file for bankruptcy in the last two months, joining Dean Foods, the largest U.S. dairy company. Now, Borden's does still plan to uh, uh, stay in business, but Dean Foods intends to sell its assets. And what, what's behind it, and what does it mean moving forward? Joining us now is John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, thanks for joining us. When you have major brand names like this filing for bankruptcy, it has to, has to wave some red flags, doesn't it? You're exactly right. This does raise some red flags when you look at what happened with, with Dean Foods in 2019 and now uh, with Borden in 2020. It, it really makes you think that, that dairy may be – uh, at an inflection point, when you think about the Class One market and, and where the the trends have been uh, for fluid milk sales over the last few decades. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Time is money, right? And money, well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Senex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Senex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Do you like what you're hearing on Adams on Agriculture? Continue that conversation important to agriculture on Twitter. You can follow the talk show at AOA underscore talk show 
or follow Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Ag. Here you will receive real-time highlights of the show and see what others are buzzing about in the industry. Adams on Agriculture hopes to meet you online. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So each month here on AOA, we take a look at the uh, Purdue CME Group Ag economy barometer numbers that come out each month and we take a look at the ag equipment sales numbers and with those numbers from december we're joined now by kurt blade senior vice president of ag services for the association of equipment manufacturers well kurt we now have the final numbers for 2019 how do they turn out well mike we made it this uh this year of 2019 is uh, is finally in finally in the books and boy what a crazy one it was we ended the year of uh, tractor and combine sales, just a little bit above where we were last year. But uh, as you look at the journey all the way through, it was a roller coaster. We started off incredibly strong, you know, sort of out of the gate a little hot, and then things softened pretty sharply about halfway through to basically take us to where we uh, where we ended up ended up the year just a little bit a little bit above last year. Which can all things considered, we've said this several times during the course of the year. All things considered, when you factor in the headwinds of trade issues and the, certainly the huge challenges of weather, uh, I guess if you can say you held your own, that's pretty good. That's uh, that's the way I look at it. Is that we held we held our own with uh, with overall tractor sales being up just a little over three percent for the year, uh, four wheel drive tractors being up about five percent over the year. Uh, and then self-propelled combines being essentially flat, down sharp, down a little bit, but essentially flat year over year. Again, all things considered, not too bad. Not too bad, uh, you know. Considering what what uh, you know, the, if we read the headlines, everything was gloom and doom all the way through. But to actually, you know, kind of end up in a couple of places, of, uh, you know, above above the line, I think we're pretty happy with that. Obviously, we don't know what the weather's going to be this year, but there are some positive signs on trade with USMCA hopefully about to get signed, and then if we get this U.S.-China trade deal tomorrow that we're waiting, I mean, those would be pretty positive uh, improvements over a year ago. Now, the question is, if this is somewhat of a turnaround year, a rebound year for the ag economy, how long does that take to translate to uh, where we see an increase in in equipment sales? Uh, Does history tell us anything about that when you're coming out of a, a down period? Well, I mean, I think we're what, what history tells us on machinery uh, sales is that uh, you know it, at, at some point uh, a farmer has to invest in new equipment. At some point, they've they've got to recognize that uh, that you know you know you you do out outstretch the the useful life of life of a piece of equipment at some point. And I think we've been we've been operating in this replacement market for a number of years. Uh, where you know, you know, farmers have been been buying new pieces of equipment basically to to replace stuff that was that was getting a little bit long in the tooth, and and either some of its reliability was going down because they're wanting the uptime, or any number of reasons that were that were coming into play there. So I think you know, I think you, you begin to see some of that some of that shake loose, uh, uh, you know, uh, investments in new pieces of equipment or new pieces of technology. I think that that begins to happen when farmers feel like they're a little bit more certain. 
that uh, that that's going to end up being a good year. I mean, these are capital purchases, so you're not you don't buy a, an articulated four wheel drive on a whim. You've got to feel pretty good about the about the future, and so yeah, I think when you look at those leading indicators with with still some uncertainty in 2020, I think that's going to be reflective in the market. But if you continue to have a couple of you know a couple of strong indicators, maybe it is positive trade, maybe it is some good things on the demand side. I think you can see that to begin to shake loose, you know, probably in the second half of the year. One of the things we've also watched during the course of the year: how do dealers handle inventory? What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, we we represent the manufacturers, not the dealers. But what I can say is that, uh, uh, you know, I think we the, the both the dealers and the manufacturers have done a pretty good job of 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 hitting right about where the market should be. I mean, we see that with uh, with the, some of the production numbers that are coming out from the from the various manufacturers, and you see that with some of the dealer inventory levels on the, on used equipment. That it's it's uh, you know it's it's always good when you find that equal, equilibrium. You know, nobody wants to have excess uh, excess inventory sitting on a dealer lot, and nobody wants to have uh, you know uh, pent up pent up demand where where dealers and manufacturers can't supply that piece of equipment. So they think they've done a pretty good job. They learned their lessons, some pretty valuable lessons in the last ten years um, the, of how to manage that inventory just a little bit better to make sure that it's right in line with where the demand is. Which was my point for the question, uh, the two are closely related, and when they work work well together, then it avoids getting uh, too far one way or the other, right? You bet, you bet. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's exceptions everywhere, but, you know, the, the, the best situation is when, you know, it's best for farmers, it's best for dealers, it's best for manufacturers, when we're all healthy. We're all healthy when the demand and the supply kind of meet each other in an equilibrium. So did have we seen any trends develop uh, as far as, you know, we've seen uh, certain categories do better than others. Do you see any trends going into 2020? Well, the, the, the trend that continues to be a nice one is the under 40 horsepower continues to be a really good, you know, and market to pay attention to. We ended uh, under 40 horsepower 5% uh, up year over year. Now, that's not quite as strong as how we ended it last year. We were closer to 8% and 10% the year before, but that's still a pretty strong number, and that represents a whole lot of volume. I think the the, the interesting story that comes out of 19 um, is, you know, we started off the year so hot with uh, with combine sales. I think that one was kind of an interesting one, a lot, lot to do with weather-related sales. Uh, rather related purchases, but uh, with all the new technology and, and combines that happened right now across across all of the manufacturers, I think that's going to be a fun one to take a look at in 2020. And then the other one that is just kind of a you know maybe maybe a little bit of a surprise is this articulated four wheel drive uh, market. Although it doesn't represent a ton of numbers, it represents a, a lot of dollars, and we saw that market up you know over five percent for 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it it ended uh, in December. It ended 30 percent month over month. So that's some pretty strong numbers. I think we want to continue to pay attention to that articulated four wheel drive market. We'll watch it closely, and we'll talk again next month, and we'll get those first 2020 numbers then. Thanks a lot. Uh, good to talk with you, Kurt. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Take care, Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President. Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.